Okay, we're going to go ahead and jump in. Um, I'm going to pray for us just to kind of reset, recalibrate our hearts and our minds, and then we'll, we'll jump into the Word. Father, thank you for rain. Lord, we're not always thankful for 30-some degrees in rain, but Lord, help us to be thankful for these things. Lord, these are gifts from you. Thank you for um, just the ability to show up on a Sunday morning at a space like this that just has um, welcomed us with open arms. Lord, thank you for the boys and the girls club. We pray blessings on them. Lord, we're getting ready to open up your word again, and there's so much good that's in here. And Lord, I, I pray that we would see it. I pray that I would be clear and not confusing or not let my, my personality somehow get in the way of just um, what you're trying to convey. So may what is of me in the flesh fall quickly to the ground. May what is of you um, just find its way into our hearts that we would walk out of here challenged. Um, encouraged, maybe even convicted. Just have your way with us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in the realia of food and drink, and I'll probably always do an introduction. As we said, these are objects and materials that help you to learn a lesson, um, make connections in your life by giving you understanding to truths and concepts. So that's what that word means. As a way of review, last week uh, we saw Jesus in this, this wilderness moment say no to lots of things, but he said no to food because he was focused on the mission that was before him. And then we saw him really begin his ministry, and he steps into Simon Peter's house, and Simon's mother-in-law was sick, and he raises her up, and the first thing that she does is she serves. She begins to serve Jesus and the people um, around him. So our three truths for last week, if you were not here, uh, watch... Um, our kingdom appetites, oh, you know what, I didn't put the right things on here, so forget that, I'll read these to you. Our kingdom appetites must outweigh our fl fleshly appetites. Truth number two, Jesus chose not to serve himself so that he could say yes to serving others. And then truth number three, true gospel understanding, and this is a lot of what Mike was talking about earlier, true gospel understanding will always lead to a life of serving Jesus, and the life of serving Jesus is primarily shown by a life of serving others. There's lots of ways that we can serve, but it's just part of our DNA. If the resurrected Jesus Christ lives within us, he is one who serves, then we should be serving the kingdom in some ways. It doesn't have to be on a Sunday morning. It just needs to be in the kingdom. And then we ended by passing the mic. There were some really good comments that were made last week, and, and my, um, Adam ended us up by saying, served people serve people, just like hurt people hurt people and love people, love people, and forgiven people, forgive people. It's true that if you've been served this grace of Jesus, then it should be a natural response that you would begin to serve others as well. So that's a quick recap. So primarily, we were looking at Jesus's posture. There was this posture of humility where he was humbling himself to do the Father's will, and then he begins to go on mission, and he begins to heal. He begins to drive out demons. Um, and today, um, he's going to continue on mission. This is a really, really good passage. It's a long passage, so there's a lot to read here. But man, there's two major takeaways, at least, you know, for us, but I'm going to hit two for us. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke 5, 27 through 39. 27 through 39. So this will be two slides. Couldn't get them all onto one. And the rain is coming down. Here's the word of the Lord. After this, he went out 
and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse number 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the, and the piece from the old will not match, or the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine deserves new for he says the old is good okay so we said that we're going through luke and even though we're not doing all of the passages we're pulling a lot of the passages the majority of the passage where there's a a connection to food and drink so that's why this particular passage um was chosen but there's two parts here and i want to hit both of them i'm not going to spend as much time on the second part as the first part but there's two main sections the first we're going to look at Jesus' call of Levi and going into his home and eating with um, sinners, uh, tax collectors and sinners, I think is one of the, the gospel says it that way. And then we're going to look at this concept of new wine and old wineskins, like what in the world was that all about? So we see right from the beginning, though, that Jesus is doing something new. He's shaking things up a bit. He isn't behaving the way that Messiah would at least not how the religious leaders thought that he would. He's already shook things up, if you'll go back and look at chapter 4, to the degree that the religious leaders were, quote-unquote, filled with wrath. Everything was fine until he started doing things out of the ordinary, until he began to challenge the religious leaders and their system, and that's when they turned on him. Then if you, if you look at verse number 12 and following in chapter 5, Jesus does the unthinkable by reaching out and he actually touches a, labor, a, a, a leper. That's a no-no. You don't touch lepers. The religious leaders will say, we don't, we don't do that. What are you doing? And then if you look at verse number 17 and following, not only does Jesus heal, heal a paralytic, but he does another no-no. He goes so far as to declare that the paralytic's sins are forgiven. The religious leaders are like, what are you doing? Forgiveness comes through the law and through the sacrificial system. That's the way that we've done things for 4,000 years now. So he's uh, shaking things up a little bit. And now he steps in to do two more unthinkable things. And the Pharisees are not going to like this at all. So let's look at it again. Look at verse number 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. And he says, follow me. And then we won't read it again. But you'll see that Jesus is sitting at the table with the tax collectors, 
plural, and he's eating with them. And the Pharisees are again saying, what are you doing? If you're the Messiah, Messiah would not do this. So at the beginning of this chapter, we see Jesus, and he is calling his disciples. They're not Pharisees. They're not scribes. They're not priests. They're not Sadducees. These are all of the religious leaders of the time. They were regular blue-collar fishermen. Acts 4 refers to them as uneducated common men. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they would be, okay, probably wouldn't have called them, you know, but whatever. But now he crosses the line, and he is going to call Levi, who is a tax collector. And there's a hard stop right here where I'm asking you to to understand and open up your mind and recognize why this is such a major no-no to the Jews and to the religious leaders. To put it mildly, tax collectors were despised by the Jews. They were despised by everyone except for the Romans that they worked for. Israel had been praying and looking for the day that Messiah was going to come, and when he would come, he was going to raise up an army, and they were no longer going to be under the rule and the reign of the the Romans who had oppressed them all of this time. Messiah, when he comes, will make things right. Finally, Israel would not be subject to them. So the Jews despised the Romans. But here's the thing. They hated the tax collectors as much, if not even more, than they did the Romans. Why? For one, tax collectors were simply legalized crooks. They were given the task of taxing the people, and there was a certain percentage that they had to give back to the Romans, but everything above and beyond that percentage that was required, they could get and they could put into their own pockets. So they were swindlers. Everybody knew it. They were cheaters, and they were wealthy because of it. But here's the other thing. They were actually Jews. Jews who had betrayed Israel by siding with the Romans for personal benefits and were working at the expense of the Jewish people themselves. The Romans, according to the Jews, were enemies of God, and that's who the tax collectors were siding with. They were siding with God's enemies. They were traitors at the highest level, turning their backs on God and his chosen people. Low-level, scum-sucking tax collectors. Do I make myself clear? I'm not making that bigger than it is. That's the way that they looked at the tax collectors. And what does Jesus do? Going back to our passage, he calls Levi, a tax collector, to come and follow him, to be his disciple. And this was an irrevocable call, that's a hard word, to the degree that in whatever way that it came across to Levi, he walked away And he heeded the call and left everything to follow Jesus. The passage says, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Talk about producing fruits in keeping with repentance. You see that immediately in Levi's life. 
walking away from his comfy Roman job, leaving his life of security, following Jesus, not even knowing what all of that was going to entail. And we see further fruits of this repentance, his change of mind and his change of actions in a moment. But before we get to that, there's another passage that when I read this, I said we absolutely have to go look at this passage because it gives some insight into what's happening both with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but also with the tax collector. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn there. And if not, I'm going to put it up here. This is pretty small. That's what the Luke 18, 9 through 14. Listen to this. Jesus is telling a parable. He told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves, that's key, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious leader at the time, and the other was a tax collector. So here's the Pharisee. He stands by himself and he prays thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, look at him, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I've said it a couple times already this morning. Jesus is doing something new, something unexpected. And we see glimpses of that when he touches a leper or when he heals on the Sabbath or declares that he has the ability to declare someone's sins forgiven. But now he's taking this mission to places that no one expected. He's taking it to the downcast, to the not so highly esteemed, the unworthy, those sinners who were haunted by their past. Jesus is on mission to seek them out and to save them, those who knew that they were lost, helpless, and deserving of condemnation and hell. This one parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it highlights what's happening at the beginning and at the end of Luke chapter 5, our passage for today. Hear me on this. When the Pharisees were, product, the Pharisees were products of an old system, a system of religion, of keeping the law, and because of their commitment to this system, they think that they are okay. They think that they're better than other people that were around them. Just like the parable here where the Pharisees thinks that he is okay, he even says in his prayer to God, I thank you that I'm not, quote-unquote, like other men, extortioners, which is exactly what the tax collector was, unjust, adulterers, and the like. Pharisee felt pretty good about himself, didn't he? He fasted regularly. He gave a portion of his income to the church. And he was so thankful that he was not like the tax collector 
this low-level scum of the earth who probably doesn't even know the Word of God like I do, would say the Pharisee, if not out loud, definitely coming from his heart. Very religious, very self-righteous. He wasn't sick, he was well. He wasn't unrighteous, he was righteous. At least in his own eyes he was, in comparison with others, which left little hope for him, for a heart that needed to change. Now, let's juxtapose that with the tax collector's response and see the difference. With the tax collector, we see brokenness, we see humility, we see sorrow, we see contrition. He knows that he's a sinner. His sins and his past haunt him. He doesn't have to be persuaded that he is guilty. He knows it. And what is his only hope? He says it here. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. The hope that God could and would have mercy on him. Remember Paul? Hitting fast forward a little bit, Paul, the one that was having Christians thrown in jail, that was there approving of Stephen's stoning. And then later, the Lord meets him on the road to Damascus. Jesus reveals himself to Paul, calls Paul, and Paul gave the rest of his life to serve this Jesus because he got it. He understood what it was meant, as Paul would call himself, to be the chief of all sinners. He got it. Just as the tax collector in this parable will get it. And just as Levi got it. So what is this it that they understood? It is this. This is critical. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And that includes not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. Not only the religious, but the non-religious. He came to seek and save those who were despised by society, shunned, without hope, the person stuck in their sexual sins, the drug addict, the lonely, those who had done things unimaginable. His mercy even extended to those. From Psalm 51, it says, A broken and contrite spirit the Lord will not despise. He will never turn away from someone who truly humbles himself before God and cries out for mercy. For if we cry out to the Lord for mercy, no matter what we've done, Psalm 103 shows this beautiful picture of him reaching down into the depths and picking us up and raising us up. And the tax collector, he had that that humility, that brokenness, and that contrition, and the Lord forgave him. He told him that he was the one who went home justified, which means that he was declared not guilty, whereas the self-righteous Pharisee was still stuck in his sins. But he thought he was okay. Friends, when you see Jesus' response to the tax collector in this passage, it gives us a glimpse of why Levi just dropped everything in Luke 5 and was willing to give up his security and to forsake all to follow Jesus. Me, a tax collector, 
being called by this Jesus that's raising people from the dead and healing the sick and casting out demons, me being shown mercy, even me, he knows I'm a tax collector, right? It's incredible. It's incredible. I've had conversations with people this week that don't know the Lord. I had a conversation with someone a couple of days ago who was just broken and who was in tears because he couldn't understand that this God could forgive him for the things that he has done. And it's passages like this that give us hope that the Lord will not turn us away because of our foolishness or because of our sins. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord in humility, in brokenness and contrition, will be saved. This is true. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how sinful your sins are, the mistake that, you, the, that you've made. We've all done it. We're all sinners, and we're separated from this holy God because of our sin, but that's why Jesus had to come. That's why he is Savior. But... And this is true as well. If you think you're okay, if you somehow think that you're righteous enough, you attend church, you're in a community group, you tithe, you're in a D group or whatever, and if somehow that has us thinking that we're better than the tax collectors of the world, then we're in trouble. We'll never be able to hear the gospel call as long as we think that we're okay. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician because they think that they're okay. And he says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You won't need a physician unless you know that you're sick. And you won't need a savior unless you know that you are very much a sinner. I spent probably more time thinking about this and working through this this week than I normally would have. But just as a reminder, I don't know, there's probably 110 people in here today. Someone in here probably doesn't know the Lord. If, I just, if you just look at the statistics, somebody here probably goes to church on a regular basis, probably is in a community group, you know, may attend Doe River or has attended Doe River or whatever, and there's been this system of religion throughout your life but you've never been broken in just this, this, this moment of just contrition before a holy, holy God. This call is to you. He called Levi the tax collector. There's nothing that you've done that is going to have the Lord, the Lord turn away from you if we will but humble ourselves and call upon him. You need to know that. You need to hear that. At, you know, this morning when we close, um, I'm going to have, you know, Mike and Sam just to be available. You know, maybe Mackenzie, just people available. If you're like, I got to talk to somebody. I got to pray with somebody. It leads to our truth number one. This one's in your worship guide. If you're filling in the blanks, it's one word. The gospel call is to everyone. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and just in case you didn't get it the first or the second time, it's everyone. Everyone. So let's not forget that, Christians, that sometimes can become a little bit self-righteous, 
can't we, when we look at our liberal neighbors, those who are struggling with their sexual identity, the mean boss, the adulterous worker, co-worker or whatever, the opioid addict or whomever, Jesus would not only go after these folks, but he would sit across a table in their home and eat with them too, which we will get back to in a moment. And that's why we chose this passage to begin with, is because we see Jesus just doing the unthinkable. And it's beautiful. Look at verse 29 again. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. What did Levi do? We see two things. First, he made a great feast in his house. Time for us to stop just for a second, just to show one indicator that we've been transformed by the gospel is we recognize that our stuff is no longer our stuff it's not my car not my home not my money this is the lord's and i want to steward it i'm willing to open up my home to invite someone in levi didn't know what to do jesus is calling him he may have been like i don't know what to do but i'm pretty good with a grill how about if i grill some burgers and you all can come to my house so that was the first thing that he did the second thing that he did look at it he invited all of his tax collector colleagues and maybe friends to eat as well. It's unbelievable. He was persuasive, too, because they came, didn't they? I love that. Levi wanted these people that were also the scum of the earth and despised and swindlers and crooks. He wanted them to meet this Jesus as well. That's the mark of a changed person. I've met Jesus. You need Jesus. I want you to meet Jesus. Come to my house. So here's this whole house full of tax collectors, a few common fishermen, and Jesus, and a bunch of Pharisees and scribes standing outside looking in the window in disgust, grumbling and complaining. Do you, does your teacher not know what he's doing? Does he not realize who he's sitting with? And they were disgusted. They were confused. And they were angry. It's as though they were saying, this Jesus obviously has power. We've seen him heal. We've seen him cast out demons. But he's going about it all wrong. We have a system. He needs to stick to the system, the system that's been in place for 4,000 years. And they're frustrated. But Jesus is doing something new. He's doing something fresh. And we need to see that it is true that this Jesus was willing to sit down with these tax collectors in their home. I've got a friend, some of you all know him well, Juan Carlos Savias. He's a former missionary, and he works at Redstone or he did work at Redstone Church in Johnson City. Great guy. Anyway, I remember years ago having a conversation with Juan Carlos. And if you're having a conversation with Juan Carlos, you just need to buckle up and pay attention, you know, because he's going to say something profound, but it may take you a while to get there. And he said something about these colors and the way that he met with people. And I went, whoa, 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 back up and explain that to me. In essence, he was saying, I've got red people, I've got yellow people, and I've got green people, and I schedule my week with each one of those colors. 
So he said, my green people are people that are really growing in their relationship with the Lord, and I just spend a lot of time with them, so there's discipleship. I've got a couple of those guys. My yellow people are people that are pretty young as believers, you know, trying to get them into the Word on a regular basis, get them to confess sin quickly, you know, those kinds of things. I was like, well, then what are the red people? He said, those are my unbelieving friends. They don't know the Lord at all. And he's like, I'm trying to find this balance in my life by spending a little bit amount of time with each one of them. And when we started Redstone Elizabethan, we took out, uh, you know, a page from the Juan Carlos Savias, you know, playbook, and we began to spend time with people, and we kind of came up with our own color-coded. We had, um, let's see, we had red, orange, yellow, light green, and dark green. Those were our colors. I don't even ask, you know, but we had colors because we recognized that there was different people in different places, but one of the things that this was key was I walked away saying, I've got to spend time with red people. I cannot spend all of my time with people that are dark green or light green that are walking with the Lord. It is good for my soul to sit across the table from people that are not like me. Garth Brooks calls them friends in low places, if you know that song, right? And I've patted myself on the back more than a few times. It came up over the past couple of weeks, and someone said something about having friends in low places. I said, I've got friends in low places. I've got friends that are drug addicts. I've got friends that are alcoholics. I've got friends that struggle with their sexual identity. You know, I've got those friends. And sometimes on a random day, you might see Pastor Jerry sitting across the table with them, having a meal, having a drink, doing whatever. And the optic may not look good because it looks like someone's crossed the line here. What does he think that he's doing? But the beauty of these conversations that take place, sometimes it's about politics, sometimes it's about America, you know, sometimes it's about Christianity. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be able to have people that are not like us in our lives. And we see that right here in Luke chapter 5. We need red people in our lives, Christians. We need tax collectors to connect with. They need Jesus. That is the call. And one of the best ways that we can connect with them is actually across from a table. I know we talk about tables an awful lot around here. But it's true. Around a table, you can have real conversations and you're eating with people and walls come down a couple of application questions for us all number one do you and i have friends that are far from jesus number two have you ever sat down over a meal just to hear their story 90 minutes i have nowhere to be i'm taking my phone turning it off i'm just going to sit here tell me your story where did you come from? And just pay attention to that. The third, have you ever invited them into your home? Second part of that would be, if not, would you be willing to? Last week, we did in the ministry moment, the avocado group came up and someone mentioned, and you know you might qualify to be an avocado if you know who Keith Green is. And I'm like, I know who Keith Green is. Love him. So I found myself listening to Keith Green this week. And there was this one song that he sang 
and I've been singing it all week long, and I'm going to read the lyrics to you. And there's, here's a warning. There's a warning here. His words sting like Jesus. He is not mincing words. Okay? He says, do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care, don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Oh, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. It's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts, no one even sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such a sin? Because he brings people to the door and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace, and all heaven just weeps. Because Jesus came to your door and you left him out in the streets. I told you he doesn't miss words. Open up, open what up, and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries, how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one, but like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Can't you see it's such a sin? The world is asleep in the dark that the church can't fight because it's asleep in the light. Wow. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave, and you can't even get out of bed. And then he ends by saying, don't close your eyes, don't pretend the job's done. There's a, a call here, even in this song, that reminds me and that reminds us of this need that we have to open up our homes, open up our minds, open up our mouths, to, to not just go into community churches and, uh, or community groups and, and church and discipleship coffees and all those kinds of things. There's nothing wrong with those. Real discipleship can take place there as well, but to recognize that we don't want to be asleep in the light. There is a mission to make Jesus known, to make disciples of Jesus. And the first step in making a disciple of Jesus is actually giving them the gospel to share what he's done in your life. You can even start there with your own personal testimony. And what we're suggesting is that this passage shows that one of the best ways that you can do that is opening up your home or sharing a meal. It was another area of conviction for me personally this week. I think I've patted myself on the back one too many times because I've got friends in low places. The call is clear. Look at it. 532, look what Jesus says. He says, I've come not to call. See that word call? the righteous but sinners to repentance. The mission includes a call, and the call is that we would repent. We would repent. We would turn. It's welcome to everyone. It is a whosoever call, but we also know from Scripture pretty clearly that the cross is offensive. Some people are going to hear it. They're going to be broken they're going to confess their sins and they're going to embrace this glorious gospel. Other people are going to tell you to go jump in the lake or they're going to slam the door on your face. And sometimes, I don't like having the door slammed on my face. It's easier just to keep things at this level than to somehow bring Jesus into the conversation and the gospel into the conversation, which leads to our final truth of the day. 
which is this. We must never forget our primary mission is to make Christ and the hope of his gospel known. It's our primary mission. He could have called us to heaven the moment that we confessed him as Lord and Savior of our lives. He could have removed us from this earth, but he says we are his ambassadors as though he's making his appeal through us. It's our primary mission. Make Jesus Christ and his gospel known. And somewhere along the line, I think at least a church in America, we've taken passages like come out from among them and be separate and don't conform to the patterns of this world. We've taken those and misapplied those, misconstrued those, and we've ignored passages that show Jesus bringing a cure into people's homes like a tax collector and sitting around and having a meal with other tax collectors as well. He's bringing a cure but he's also bringing a change, which is the second part. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. This is the Pharisees. They're like, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the old will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, deserves new, for he says the old is good. We're going to attempt to break down everything that's being said there, but Jesus is doing something new. It's unexpected. It's fresh. Jesus is touching lepers. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's telling people that their sins can be forgiven without having to sacrifice an animal. And now he's calling people like tax collectors. And he's even eating in their homes. He is doing something new. And what's the point? This new thing that he's doing, it will simply burst the old wineskins of religion and the law. And the hope that the Israelites had that salvation was going to come to the Jews and the Jews only. Messiah is coming and he's going to rule over the Romans. What he's doing is going to burst their thinking. That was what it was expected in this old system, but this is not the trail that Jesus has chosen. Rather, this is new. It's better. It's a better system, a better wineskin. It's a better covenant, if you will. God comes to dwell with sinful people, and he invites all common folk, tax collectors, sinners, Samaritans, Gentiles like us, unheard of. And it's a new system where he and he alone doesn't disregard the law. He fulfills the law. That's a Another sermon within itself. But he fulfills the law. Everything that we saw in the Old Testament was pointing to Messiah. None of the Old Testament makes sense unless Jesus is what it was leading us to. Jesus fulfills that. He alone pays that one sacrifice as the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. And this is the new covenant that he is ushering in. And it's sealed 
with his own blood. And when we accept this good news, which we call the gospel, he tells us, now that you've accepted the fact that I've paid the, pack, the sacrifice, I am the Lamb of God, believe in me and all your sins have been, will be forgiven, do not go back to the old wineskin. You can't go back to the old covenant, to um, an old system that would never save and was based on religion and works. You can't go back to that system again. Jesus and Jesus alone will satisfy. Look at the difference between these two. These old wineskins, religion, the law, and here's the new wineskins, gospel and grace. Just look at it. You can see the difference that's right here in our passage. One was exclusive for Israel only, unwelcoming. Why is your teacher eating with them? There's fasting in the anticipation of our soon coming conquering king, and then there's grumbling. This is not how things are supposed to be. Look at this new wineskin, this gospel, this grace, this new covenant. It's inclusive. Tax collectors, sinners, Gentiles, whoever. It's very welcoming. It's feasting because he has come. Now, don't get me wrong. There's times that we, we are still supposed to fast. You know, there, are, there are good times, even as believers, that we, we should fast. Those, that's at least one sermon. But in this moment, Jesus is here. Messiah has come, we should be rejoicing and feasting. Grace brings rejoicing. The old wineskins represents a faith built on religion and legalism. The new wineskin represents a faith built on the grace and sacrifice of Christ alone. One is arduous, it's heavy, it's frustrating. The other is liberating. And it produces fruits of joy, peace, love, service, and the like. And that's what this passage is showing. So when you look at this list, which one is more indicative of what your faith and my faith looks like? What would your neighbors say? What would your family members say? I propose that we learn from our teacher and savior and that we live a life consistent with the old being gone and the new being here where there's true grace, love, joy, rejoicing, a willingness to open up our homes, to sit with and to dine with tax collectors and to be on mission recognizing that he has called whosoever and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I love Levi in this passage. Jesus says, come follow me. He leaves everything. He opens up his home. He turns on the grill, and he invites all of his lost friends over. We have much we can learn from this passage. I am so out of time that I am going to have to just stop. Let's let our words sink in this morning. Let's spend a few minutes in prayer. I'd love to pass the mic. I was afraid I was going to go over, and I did. So if you've got a mic moment, share it with somebody over a meal this week or over a coffee. Let's continue the conversation. But right now, let's just go to the Lord.
And let's spend some time in prayer. Father, meet us, meet us where we're at. When we hear the word this morning, Lord, how does it impact us? Do we have ears to hear? I pray that we do. And Lord, what might a personal, real-life application be to what we saw in this passage? Meet us where we're at. May our posture be as humble servants who want to grow and be on mission.